Welcome to The Marketer's Journey, a podcast that delivers real conversations and fresh perspectives from senior marketing executives who share the journey they've taken and the buyer journey they create. And now here's your host, Randy Frisch. Welcome to The Marketer's Journey. Today, I sit down with Kate Lockheed. Kate is the CMO of JumpCloud. Now, this is Kate's third CMO gig. So we chat a little bit about finding that right gig and understanding what type of DNA you have as a leader. And Kate owns that she's become very comfortable in areas that are focused on tech and areas of PLG, product-led growth. And that weaves very much to our conversation today. That conversation digs into how do we balance a strong product-led growth machine with the marketing machine? Also, what happens when we look to expand our go-to-market strategy? To date, JumpCloud has very much been in direct sales, selling to tech people who can sign up in minutes. But there's a whole other opportunity in the channel. And how do you balance a channel investment with your direct investment in go-to-market? Here's my chat with Kate Lockheed. Kate, really excited to chat with you today. Tell us first how you landed. This is now your third CMO gig. Why was JumpCloud the right fit? Uh, hey, Randy, thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Um, JumpCloud was the right fit in a lot of ways for me, both personally and professionally. They kind of came together just before COVID, actually, in a really great right. way. You know, at the highest level, it's sort of in my wheelhouse as far as being an infrastructure company, it's an IT platform that basically serves as a directory of all the things, directory of users, directory of identities, directory of events, um, devices. So that's kind of where my happy place is in techie tech. (laughs) Um, And its model is a PLG model. A lot of my background is around open source and PLG I think of as sort of of like a child of the open source mindset, which is that technical buyers like to get their hands on a product before they actually put any money down and play around with it. Um, so our model there really fits that kind of selling motion that I've done historically in my career. And then size-wise, it was really interesting when I joined JumpCloud. It was pretty small, around 100 people, and we're over 600 now. So it was really starting to hit that growth, hyper-growth phase, which is something I've been really fortunate to play with at a lot of different companies. And it's a phase of chaos and learning and excitement that I really enjoy in my career. So how do you, you alluded to finding your sweet spot, finding this techie space, PLG focus. When did you latch on to that in your career and realize it was something that you could sink your teeth in long-term? Yeah, it's a great thing. Um, gosh, well, on the personal side, I moved to San Francisco right after school and met my husband the time he was not my husband, obviously. And he said, I worked for a company called Oracle. And I was like, I've never heard of it. <laughs> What's Oracle? He said, it's a database company. I said, I've never heard of that. What's that? <laughs> he patiently, you know, as we were falling in love, I guess, explained to me a lot of the core basics of how um, software and technology works. And uh, I started working in tech in the late 90s with infrastructure companies like Inc. to Me and Exodus, who really pioneered the early internet. You know, I'm I'm not an engineer by training or education. I was an English and anthropology major, um, so about as far away from those things as you can get. 
but have always loved learning from engineers and kind of the dreamers who think of here's a different, better way that we can do this. And I just find it fascinating to learn about. So I think I've pretty much since I got out of college started falling in love with that. So it's interesting. I mean, you, you bring up Oracle and we at Uberflip partner really closely with Oracle, so I'm never going to knock them, but I, but I would never associate them as that low friction sign up online, product-led growth. I mean, you're buying enterprise software. <laughs> and Sorry, I shouldn't laugh. No, that's I know, Oracle. but it's true, right? Like, and, and I love Oracle. I mean, it, you know, the solutions of theirs like Eloqua, I mean, that's, that's a marketer's dream to have that type of technology. But I'm, I'm curious when you started, you know, again, to double down on this, this easy sign up. And, and I think, you know, I've had guests on this podcast, like, you know, the CMO box. I mean, we've, we've seen that ease of sign up so important to a consumer. And, and I'm going to quote something from your LinkedIn profile where you said you're always learning from B2C companies. And I'm, I'm curious where that inspiration for you comes from in terms of thinking about how you take a tech person to just get them online in minutes. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, minutes would be a dream. <laughs> so, so I won't say that. Um, and yes, or you're right. Oracle is not um, PLG or, you know, particularly at the times when I was at Oracle, necessarily open source friendly, um, you know, having taken my journey through MariaDB, which was founded by Monty Whitney, you know, out of MySQL after Sunbot, uh, after Oraclebot Sun. But on my journey, it really started at Couchbase. So Couchbase was the first um, company I worked for that had an open source offering. And it was hard, right? It was hard going in from my background, which was very enterprise salesy. And Couchbase was definitely is an enterprise grade solution focusing on large enterprise customers. But um, the whole notion of product accessibility and openness around the product of what works and what doesn't work, right? Like, hey, this time, you know, and um, as you know, the open source communities are are very transparent about everything that is good and bad about something. And that was a crash course for me. And I had some some really cool engineers, um, it, rock star people. I mean, Couchbase has brilliant people like Oracle, you know, just really, really smart people. Um, who kind of educated me and, and were, were kind and sometimes less kind on um, marketing's, you know, attempt to actually sell the product. Right. <laughs> so, you know, but I fell in love with that. It was such a different challenge, right? And, and also there's this balance that you're constantly having to strike of an engineer, you know, and particularly in when I like to come into companies pretty early stage, right? Engineering still has a very powerful voice and engineers tend to want to describe how they built the product, right? And how it does what it does, not necessarily the benefit or why it does what it does, because they're, you know, obsessed with build, the building of the product, which is awesome. But to, to make a company really go, and John Cloud's a great example of that, you have to start talking to benefits, right? You have to be able to have a CFO level story. You have to have a business story. That's, you know, always been like a really fun, exciting thing to do in these infrastructure companies is how do you take that voice of engineering and those early, early positionings and website copy and all of the messaging that's very much geared towards how was the product built and evolve it to how is this product going to change the world and make your business better? So you lined, you lined up a great transition for me before we take a break, which is this idea of communication and messaging is was in your last answer. And that was a big part of the early part of your career. 
How do you think that shaped the type of CMO you are today? I mean, where does Calm sit in terms of, and I don't want to use the word priority, but how do you work in comms and at the same time have someone reporting into you to own comms? Yeah. So I am very fortunate to work with the great Eric Brown, who I think you got to meet on this. Um, Eric and I actually, funny side story, worked together at the same PR agency in like 1997 in the basement floor of the Weber Group in in Palo Alto. Um, And because comms is so intuitive for me, it's where I want to have a super strong leader in a way, because I don't need to really focus there, right? I have someone really strong and you have, uh, you know, because we've worked together a couple of times, we have sort of that no look past mentality. So we can have a conversation in two minutes and solve something that with like other coworkers or leaders, you know, might take 10 to 20 minutes to work through. So I really see ownership of like what we ought to do and the recommendations there to my leader who is incredibly talented and experienced. I spent coming in to be a CMO, I had to really dig deep into MOPS and demand gen to understand those things. Um, And you just, you can't be a CMO at a growth stage company where a a large majority of your attention has to constantly be focused on pipeline and how are we doing and what are we doing there? So um, as much as my heart is in comms, and that's truly my happy place, I probably spend the majority of my time more on the um, revenue generating pipeline building side of the house. I I love the self-awareness of that. And I'm going to use the word sacrifice that you have to make there. I'm I'm curious, did you realize that the first time you led marketing or was that something, you know, the second CMO gig, you realize, okay, I've, I've got to really double down on these I don't want to say areas of weakness, but, you know, maybe the areas you're not drawn to. Yes, it was. I was a disaster my first CMO job. I mean, it actually, it went well and people were patient with me. But I, I remember the first woman I brought in to lead um, Pops and she's like, what? Like, I, I just can't think of how many times I would say something and she must have just been like, who am I working for? Like, this right. but she was awesome. And we had a great inside sales leader and a great CRO there. And um, the four of us banded together and spent a lot of time together. You know, Maria was pretty early just building the funnel and understanding what the dynamics were, what conversions were, and what velocity was. And, um, you know, so that that was kind of a uh, grad school, I guess, for CMOs, or I don't know, (laughs) Um, in my experience. But to your point, yes, I definitely didn't. I I brought someone very talented in to to do comms at Marie, and she's actually still there and doing a phenomenal job. But um, I thought, oh, this is where I'll spend most of my time, right? Like, this is sort of my strength. And like, how do we get the story out there and really leverage some of the the really well-known people and, and kind of technology rock stars that Maria has in its portfolio to tell that story. Very cool. Well, I I feel like you've left us with a cliffhanger as we go into a break. Will we talk about mops or will we talk about comms on the flip side? People are going to have to tune back here on The Marketer's Journey. Want to improve the buyer journey for your customers and your prospects? Look no further than our presenting sponsor, Uberflip. Named a leader in content experience by G2 and a leader in content activation by Forrester, Uberflip will help you accelerate every buyer journey by creating bingeable experiences that will allow your prospects to consume more content 
faster. Companies like Trimble, Wiley, and 3M are using Uberflip to power their go-to-market strategies, and we created one just for you. Head to uberflip.com journey to see how Uberflip can help you leverage the power of personalized content experiences. To step up to be a CMO, you can't just specialize in one area of marketing. Yes, I've had people talk about how they've brought in the supporting cast, but what's really interesting about Kate's approach is that she actually let go of the area that she enjoys the most, that comms piece. She brought in someone who she could trust, someone who she knows can do that work right. And she's able in turn to look, to balance her focus, as she says, to mobs and demand you. I think this mindset is one that marketing leaders have to be prepared to do as they make that jump. I'm not saying that you can't bring your superpower, your super strength to the table, but you are expected as a CMO to be able to look over the entire organization. And sometimes to let go of the thing that we're most fond of, it's best to be able to trust. I remember actually when I recently let go of the CMO title, moving into my new role, someone advised me, you've got to find someone really strong on the messaging and the brand side so you can let that part go. I think trust is a key element to being a CMO. Kate, can you help me understand the go-to-market strategy? We talked about product-led growth, but how do you actually get people into the funnel? Yeah, great question. So, and, and actually one of the cool things about Jump Cloud, I was just thinking, Brandy, um, I'm, I'm terrible at like thought pops into head and out mouth. One of the things that was cool about Jump Cloud and, and attracted me to joining the company was that when I joined, they were, and we actually still are 100% marketing source pipeline. Um, so we're just starting to build some outbound motions, but um, currently we still have all inbound to sales for the most part. And Jump Cloud, when I joined, was primarily uh, an organic engine. Um, so very content driven. And that was the expertise of the marketing team. There was one person in doing paid digital, but other than that, it was all uh, blog related. When we look at the buyer's journey, you know, the buyer's journey that PLG companies want to have is sort of move through the awareness, you know, come through content or whatever it is, however <laughs> you get in and you immediately get in the product. You have an aha moment, you fall in love and, you know, at Jump Cloud, if you have more than 10 people, then you become a paying customer, right? We offer okay. under 10 users free forever. You know, within sort of that beautiful, clean picture, there's a lot of like really messy journeys after that, right? We had an amazing guy in our analytics team who was here when I joined the company and he kind of had a two slide vision that was really perfect of this, of like awareness, product usage, conversion, right? Like the okay. funnel. Like and that. it was beautiful. Yeah. And then he was like, reality. <laughs> it's just the chaos, you know, image of like lines everywhere. And, you know, everybody's sort of doing their own thing. And I think we in marketing really put it down to, to three distinct journeys that we see happening. And so they cut across two different um, types of business that we have. The one is our direct business, which we sell directly to primarily IT teams, sometimes the security team or DevOps, um, but IT being the, the majority of our audience. And then the other side of the business is the channel. And we focus primarily on MSPs there. And then I would say within the direct side, we see sort of 
two different journeys happening there. And I, um, we call those one, the crunch based segment, which is really cloud forward thinking companies who are new. They're like jump cloud, you know, they're young, hyper growth companies, their IT teams are forward thinking. They don't want Microsoft um, on premise. They don't want right. Active Directory. <laughs> then we have like the, what we call, you can pry AD out of my cold dead hands, IT segment. Those guys have been using Microsoft. They were around when Active Directory first launched in the late nineties. And um, they're, you know, that's their comfort zone, right? And those people typically need a little more handholding to really understand because they just haven't been working with cloud native technologies as much. So we see them go through a different buyer's journey where they get engaged with sales, sometimes before they even create a free account and start playing around. And they want someone to show them the product and guide them through it. Um, the crunch base. Yeah. And the crunch base guys, you see them, they'll get in, create the product. We have a ton of um, product metrics that we track um, that we basically look at as you know primary criteria for likelihood to convert. They usually go through those steps pretty consistently and then self-serve or call sales and buy on their own. It's, it's really interesting is I'm, I'm thinking back to that slide that you described of awareness product usage, which is a fantastic vision. Again, I mean, it's dream come true and it, I'm, I'm contrasting it or comparing it, if you will, to the crossing the chasm. You know, the early market, you can absolutely expect and hope that some of these, as you call them, I think, crunch base companies are going to come in and they're going to have the vision themselves and they're going to you know, roll up their sleeves. But you describe the, those more dinosaur like buyers. And, you know, those are I, your words, not mine. I know. I, I, it's OK. <laughs> it's okay. You, you, you had to clarify that because your comms guy is probably listening. <laughs> but, <laughs> but but you're right. It's it's extremely presumptuous to assume that they're going to go from awareness right into product usage. So how do you approach a content strategy, if you will, in that more complex buying cycle when you're so good at the product like growth? Yeah, yeah. Such a great question. I love the crossing the chasm reference. And I think, you know, the other is is Gartner, right? I mean, we're very much in those, those crunch-based people are the early adopters, right? Like they're on Absolutely. the bleeding edge. They're like happy to jump in and get going because they're tinkerers. So that's great. We love them. From a content side, so the product really lends itself to a strong content strategy. It is, and, and this I'll, I'll give, let me just see if I can do a 60 second summary of, of kind of where Jump Cloud sits in the market. Um, we've touched on Active Directory a few times. So back in the 90s, Microsoft launched a product for people who don't know called Active Directory. And Active Directory was basically a way for IT to get a single view of all the people who worked at a company, all the things that those people would need to connect to. So think you want to connect to a printer, you want to connect to Wi-Fi, you want to connect to file, you know, back then, you know, different files and all of those types of things. And it made it simple for IT to be able to do that, create groups and do that on mass versus like, okay, we've hired Randy today. Randy's in marketing. Randy needs access to this system. Let me create him access there. Let me create him access here. All of that, right? Which which was a brilliant vision and very Microsoft-like in the 90s. They assumed that there would never be anything that wasn't Microsoft in the workplace. And um, very, very quickly, Salesforce launched and everybody started using Salesforce. And Active Directory couldn't connect Salesforce, right? So now you have um, you know, pretty dynamic group of people. Salespeople tend to come and go pretty quickly, right? Who have to be like manually connected or managed if you actually say, want to be sure that all of your customer information and all of your contract dollar amounts are secure, 
you know, and then Apple's came, uh, you know, MacBooks came into the workplace and, and this vision of Active Directory being the single source of truth really started to fall apart very quickly. So all these little, at the time, submarkets sprung up, things like SSO, like Okta, MDM, Jamf, you know, all of these sort of things that sprinkled around Active Directory to kind of make it work for the way that the workplace actually looked and give, so IT started adopting, you know, it's a classic story, right? Of like a bunch of best of breed solutions around Active Directory to make it work. Everybody assumed though, that you would have a single directory and that would always be Active Directory. And one of the coolest things about JumpCloud is our founder, uh, Rajat Bhagarva, he was like, everyone went right, right? Like, let's assume Active Directory. And he was like, Active Directory is the bleeping problem, right? <laughs> like, that just doesn't work in our world. That's a disaster. You need a cloud-native directory. And once you start building that, you realize that MDM, SSO, MFA, all of these um, different components that help manage access and track it and enable compliance and reporting and security are really just features of the directory. So once again, Microsoft had it right, right? They, they understood the world. They just couldn't get out of their own way, right? And they have, I'll bring in another book, right? They're stuck with the innovator's dilemma and they can't Absolutely. get out of themselves. And so, it's yeah. perfect. Back to your original question around content strategy, because JumpCloud is so broad and hits all of these like satellite markets around directory, there's a ton of people who are saying, I have like so many best of breed solutions and, and all the vendors are realizing it, right? So everybody kind of has feature creep and that creates a ton of search volume, which lends itself very handily to a content strategy. So, so let's, I mean, first off, that was really interesting. I mean, just understanding and the simplicity of how you explained you know, more than 10 years of evolution for the crunch base user that we described earlier, they're geeking out on this stuff every day. They're reading articles on TechCrunch or wherever they're finding them and they're trying all these new products, but you hit on another segment of your go-to-market even beyond what I called the dinosaurs, not you, which was channel and channel also establishes ways that they've sold and they become known for. So is, is your mindset to go after the crunch base channel people, or is your mindset to go after, you can insert the word this time, the, yeah. you know, the, the more proven channel partners who have used the active directory in your world. Yeah. And, you know, like any well-funded hyper growth company, I'll go with both. Um, we see opportunity in both those segments, right? So, so let's set aside the direct guys for a minute because I think you hit you hit them on the head, right? Like they're hungry for this, they're out searching, they're ready to try. I mean, they're they're great, right? Like we love those people. They convert fast, they convert easy, you know, and they love the product. I mean, they're rabid advocates of of what we're doing, and and they just love it. They think it's game changing. Over on the side, you know, the channel side. So when you when you move into channel, you move into the MSPs, right? You suddenly move into. I think there are estimates that there are about thirty thousand MSPs within North America, and thirty thousand globally. Um, and those are pretty small shops, right? And um, as any small business, they don't have a lot of time. And so the content strategy is a little different with them, right? We don't see that. Early indicators are we don't see that playing off as strongly or as quickly, at least as it does on the direct side. Um, so it's, it's really challenging us to a whole new go-to-market approach. So the MSPs are very communal. 
they participate a lot in the forums, which is great. And we recently launched a community site uh, that they're very involved in, but they like events. They like webinars. They like actual physical events um, on location. <laughs> you know, they want to go places. So, so it's been a, a real learning curve for us as the company. This year we set, was the first year that we set a revenue target for the channel business um, and a very aggressive one at that. So we're sort of figuring out the balance between um, between betwixt and across the business, right? All in engineering right. resources, sales resources, and marketing resources. Like, you know, because the further you move into any new area and any new market, the more you learn and the more you realize like, oh, we've had some some great success here, but gosh, we're going to have to do a lot more if we really want to own this and be the leader. It's it's a really valid point. And I, and I think a lot of businesses that you can think of offhand They've succeeded more so either direct or channel. And, and there's not a lot of situations where we see, I mean, one that comes to mind that was a, a cool story. I was watching HubSpot scale. I think HubSpot did a fantastic job embracing both the channel as well as the direct customer and, and winning over both also for, for an SMB type of audience. But, you know, it's, it's an interesting challenge. And I'm, I'm curious, just one last quick question before we take a break here without giving me exact percentages, because that may be part of your recipe, but how do you start to designate a certain amount of your budget towards this channel play when I'm sure the ROI on the direct is so strong? Yeah, that, that is a lively discussion on my team. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I, I won't, I'll, I'll shy away from giving specific numbers, but I think you know, for people who, who are listening and thinking about this, it is really challenging, first of all, to go, as as marketers know, famous last words from someone are like, oh, you just do this, <laughs> right? Like just, right. and anything that begins with just do is, um, just, you know. Just tack it on to your strategy. Yeah, yeah. It's like cringeworthy, <laughs> right? You know, we're really playing and learning because the problem is, as you know, at this stage of growth, your historicals are not necessarily predictive into what you're doing. So we're trying to find, I'll be honest, I don't have the perfect model because we're trying to find the balance of how much of a halo effect do we get from all the platform marketing into the channel marketing. Absolutely. Which is pretty significant because that's what grew it to a big enough portion of revenue that we were like, hey, we should focus here. No, I understand what you're getting at. It's, it's, there is that halo effect, but there's also within all of our organizations, always this question of when do I hire that first full headcount? Or when do I give that one partner person I'm going to call them partner guy, not not intentionally guy, but the partner guy. When does the partner guy get more headcount? These are always yeah. questions that we need to decide. And you know, does partner marketing sit, on its, sit within marketing or is it its own division? These are fun discussions. We'll hit them for sure as we go through different companies' journeys. But you know, it's been it's been fun chatting about this with you, Kate. And uh, I can't thank you enough. We're going to keep you around after a break. We'll do one more quick segment here on the marketer's journey. Since recording with Kate, I've been thinking back to this conversation on balancing our go-to-market between direct and partner. And I referenced in our chat the example of HubSpot. HubSpot did a fantastic job at this. I remember going to their inbound conference and they'd have a full other track for partners. We did this at Uberflip back when we used to do the content experience conference. 
This element is so key to becoming a large organization. You look at the success that HubSpot's managed to have with their business. And you look at that even in B2C, a company like Apple is a great example. It's a company that absolutely knows how to go direct. But at the true scale of enterprise, of working with companies who are buying Macs at workplaces, it's amazing to see the inner workings of the partner networks that they have too. This is an important part as you think about becoming a unicorn. Taking your business to that next level of scale means that you need to rely on the ecosystem around you. Kate, we have unpacked your career journey. We've talked about the complexities of a multifaceted go-to-market strategy. Now we're gonna hit you with some of the toughest questions, which is a little bit of your look to the future. And my first question for you here is, when you look at that next CMO, maybe there's someone on your team, someone you've worked with before, do you think they're coming to that CMO gig through a specialty or more of that tour of duty generalist? I think it is neither. It's really the ability to contextualize the business, I think is the most important skill. That's what I look for on my team of people who um, want to be a CMO, right? Can they start to understand how the business operates and is interconnected? And so giving them those, like note to CMOs, right? Giving those folks an opportunity to start to learn that as early as possible is really important. It's a great answer. I think, you know, a lot of us don't realize that jump from overseeing a discipline to being an officer of the business, you know, we need to think about all different departments and, and we don't get a lot of that even when we're owning demand gen as an example. Let's shift to content. We hit on content a little bit there in terms of your content strategy, but I'm curious for you, when you get content, when someone's selling to you, what makes for great content? Oh gosh, I don't know. It's hard to be a good judge of that as a marketer, right? I got an a ebook from Snowflake this morning that was targeted towards marketers, which I thought was really interesting, right? They had segment in there. They're kind of touching on the CDPs. They're touching on marketing automation. You know, I mean, they're kind of getting in an interesting position. Um, so I look for, I mean, again, I was an English major, so I look for well-written content probably more than anything. You can be talking about anything, but if you don't have a good uh, writer covering it, I usually think it's garbage. <laughs> That's great. I, I like that balance of of writing skills and as you kind of started the personalization that Snowflake's doing with you. And I know some of the team there, uh, we get we get to work with them here at Uberflip and they, they're definitely big on personalization. That, that actually takes me to my next question. You hit on some of the elements that were personalized to you. Snowflake's not marketing to you like you're an IT person. They're marketing to you as a marketer. What is it for you that makes something personalized these days? What are some of those attributes? Oh my gosh, that's a tough question. Um, know what I've done on your site. I mean, I kind of feel like just knowing how hard it is to find things out and then... Um, how easy it is to find some things, right? I have a lot of BDRs in my inbox who have read my LinkedIn profile and refer to that. I had one who say, who told me it was great that I was a grandmother because um, I <laughs> said something about something I thought my grandchildren who have not yet been born since my oldest child is 14. <laughs> but I, you know, I think understanding like, what have I done on your website? I mean, I look at website journey data for buyers uh, retroactively, you know, note to Snowflake, if you can help me solve that problem so that we can service that better, I would appreciate it. 
But that there's so much rich data there. I think that's a big opportunity for marketers, um, how we really start to, and I know there are platforms out there, I'm not familiar with them, um, that are starting to create dynamic content based on where people have been. And so I'm hoping, you know, somewhere in the next 12 to I don't know, probably 12 to 18 months, we can start to play with that at JumpCloud. That's great. Listen, I, I mean, I'll, I'll put a, a, a light Uberflip plug there as we go through this, but I, I won't yeah. fill in the story. Those who listen to us regularly know, know that we, we, we are dangerous on that front. Uh, my last question for you, I'm going to call back to your LinkedIn, uh, where, as you said, you, you're not a grandmother, uh, but you are a mother. And, and in fact, the, you know, the first words about, of your about us section are, I am a wife and a mom of three kids, which is something you sadly don't see from men, women, anyone in terms of owning who they are professionally and the connection to personal. How do you balance those two? How do you make time for the personal as a busy CMO? Yeah, I refer back to the the plane, right? Put a mask on yourself first before you do anybody else. And, and that truly is it, right? As a, um, as a colleague, as a mentor, as an employee, as a wife, a mother, all of those things, if I'm not sane and happy, I can't serve anyone else well. So for me, that's prioritizing sleep and exercise uh, above all. So um, those things come first. I always make time for them. Such, such great advice. And I, I love that, that callback to the airplane. Kate, thanks so much for joining us today, for sharing your journey both personally, professionally, the buyer journey that you're charting. As anyone's listening to this, if you've stumbled into this as your first episode of The Marketer's Journey, check out the 100 plus episodes I've had. Every CMO's journey is a little bit different. Yours is probably taking its own path. One day, hopefully, you'll be on here to share it. Until next time, thanks for tuning in. You've been listening to the Marketer's Journey podcast. Big thanks to our sponsors at Uberflip, who help you fuel demand generation with content for an accelerated buyer journey. To ensure you never miss an episode, subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify at uberflip.com slash podcast or anywhere you listen to podcasts. 